Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 162 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the wonderful world of pixel art and whether it's a dying art form. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Mark Ferrari. He's the author of the novel The Book of Joby from Tor Books, and he also drew the background art for two of my all-time favorite games, Brian Moriarty's Loom and Ron Gilbert's The Secret of Monkey Island. Mark is also producing retro pixel art backgrounds for Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick's new points-and-click adventure game Thimbleweed Park. So Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Michael B. Myers Jr. By day, he works as a visual designer at the software company Workiva, and in his spare time, he freelances as an illustrator under the name Draws Good for clients like Hasbro, Riot Games, and Skullcandy. His illustrations will be appearing this fall in the Puffin Pixel series, which are books that use retro pixel art to illustrate classic stories like Robin Hood and King Arthur. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. And also joining us today is Blake Reynolds, lead artist and co-founder of Dino Farm Games. Dino Farm recently released their first self-published title, Oro, A Monster Bumping Adventure, which is my new favorite game. Blake also created the logo for Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, and his recent blog post, A Pixel Artist Renounces Pixel Art, helped inspire this panel. So, Blake, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Dave. Thank you. All right. And so, first of all, I want to talk about how you guys all got involved with pixel art. So, Mark, let's start off with you and have you just tell us a bit about how you got started doing pixel art. Well, I, um, I decided to uh, become an illustrator. Uh, back in the late 80s. How I decided that is too long a story to bother with here, I think. But the very first time I ever showed any of, of my artwork, which was all done in colored pencil in those days, although it didn't look like colored pencil, I showed it at a science fiction convention in San Jose, California. And uh, to my amazement, attracted a lot of attention. And one of the people there was the art director from Lucasfilm Games, who approached me about working for them. And I... Of course, I wanted to work for Lucasfilm, but I, I felt um, that I needed to tell him I was a dyed-in-the-wool technophobe who had never touched a computer, and I wasn't sure I was the right guy for them. And his response was that they preferred to find artists and teach them to use computers to finding computer technicians and teaching them to be artists. And so they showed me how to use Deluxe Paint 2 by Electronic Arts. And I think probably I ended up being a more innovative artist than... Uh, Anybody expected me to be partially because I did not know what I was doing. I kept doing things with uh, de-paint that anyone who knew what they were doing would have known better than to try. Hmm. Well, like, what, is one of those thing, what are some of those things that you tried that had never been done before? Well, it, it's not that it had never been done before, but you couldn't do it in games back then. And now you're just going to go, really, that? But <laughs> dither. Um, when I was hired to work on the... Uh, the EGA version of um, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. Uh, EGA, in case anyone doesn't know, refers to a 16-color universal palette, which used to be the only colors that any uh, game artist had to make uh, artwork for any game in. And we all had the same 16-color palette, the EGA palette. And uh, those colors were designed by programmers. In fact, they were the perfect example of why Gary preferred to hire artists, not technicians. Uh, they had simply moved the RGB numbers at even intervals to come up with two numerically uh, rounded reds, yellows, greens, blues, whites, and grays. And they were acid, 
horrible, unusable <laughs> colors, and they were all we had. And uh, so the first thing I did when I sat down to do backgrounds for Zach McCracken is I began to checkerboard dither those colors to get more useful colors. Uh, CTR monitors in those days were blurry enough that the checkerboard sort of blurred together into a, a solid color anyway. And I thought I was coming up with much better results than, you know, what I'd, the examples I had been given. I'd only been doing it for about an hour when Ron Gilbert and some of his programmers came rushing in in a dither, you might say, <laughs> uh, to tell me that dither didn't compress and I must not use dither, I must use only solid colors. So I shrugged and did Zach McCracken in the Alien Mindbender backgrounds in solid colors, but when the project was over, as a kind of silent protest, I, uh, I drew a picture one morning of the moon rising at sunset behind a number of ridges of, of uh, live oak covered hills in dithered EGA colors and just left it on my screen as a, like I said, a silent protest to, uh, you know, why? Why can't we make pictures that look like this? I mean, I can draw them. Why can't we use them? And I went to lunch. And when I came back from lunch, Steve Arnold, who was the, uh, the head of the division at that time, and Ron Gilbert were having a very animated discussion in front of my monitor about why dither didn't compress. And within a month or two, dither did compress. And uh, Loom was the result. That was the first game we did with art that was all EGA dithered. And a lot of people thought it was a VGA game uh, because the results were so much more than what they were used to seeing in EGA games. Well, so I mentioned in the intro that Loom and Secret of Monkey Island are just absolutely two of my all-time favorite video games. I was just wondering, do you have any memories from working on those games, any art that you drew that particularly stands out in your mind that you're particularly proud of or was challenging or that there's a funny story related uh, associated with, anything like that? Well, I was working with Ron Gilbert, Gary Winnick, uh, Ken Macklin, and Steve Purcell, so there are funny stories associated with virtually every minute of my time hmm. uh, on Skywalker Ranch, but um, I really liked the uh, the Pirate Cove town, shanty town, uh, with the, the sunset ocean in the background in Secret of Monkey Island. It was probably the closest I ever got to that original dithered protest picture that I had left up on my screen uh, in terms of work that actually went into a game. Um, I, I enjoyed that. Um, I, I enjoyed everything about Loom. I mean, Loom was really... A thing to understand about me is that I really... I, I did not come into the industry as a gamer. Uh, I had, as I said, never touched a computer. For me, it was entirely about the art. Um, I think for a lot of people in the business, it's about the game. For me, it was just the art. And, you know, we were making a game, and that was interesting. And, and I got more interested in games as we made them. But I was never all that interested in games. Mostly, I was just interested in art. What do you want me to draw? And how can I make it as beautiful as possible? Um, so probably the, the funnest part for me of those early EGA art days was the puzzle solving involved in figuring out how to make a better picture with these 16 awful colors <laughs> in large visible squares. Um, that was really engaging, purely artistically. That was really engaging for me. Oh, well, how about Michael? Let's get you in here. You want to just tell us a little bit about your history with pixels? Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, I think the first time I I drew pixel art was, I was eight or nine, I think my dad had a Tandy 1000 is what I think it was. And whatever, I'm not sure what paint or draw program was on there, but I remember recreating, uh, I think going through like the Final Fantasy 
uh, guidebook that came with, you know, back in the day when you used to actually get like a little pamphlet that came with the game and going through and recreating, um, you know, pixel for pixel um, what we were seeing. So my, my brothers and I sitting and doing that. So that was really the first uh, pixel art I remember doing. And at that time, it was just, you know, drawing essentially, you know, on the computer. Um, I did a little bit of that. And then I kind of went away from it, focused on more just drawing and, and painting traditionally. Um, and then the thing that kind of got me back into uh, pixel art was it was a sword and sorcery uh, Super Brothers, just a really unique. I, I'd always appreciated, you know, Mark, your your artwork in, in Monkey Island is fantastic and I always love that. Um, but I think at that point, you just kind of took it for granted as, um, you know, that's that was the art, you know, of that mm-hmm. time. So, um, yeah, so I, I kind of didn't really think much about it until I saw this kind of fresh take is kind of what I would consider, uh, you know, that super Brothers style. Um, and that got me kind of interested and kind of back into exploring. And I think I kind of, um, pilfered that style and tried some things out, um, recreated, like, I think I did like a Conan O'Brien pixel art and, um, some other things, but then started kind of morphing it into, kind of more of my own, just kind of beefing up the pixels a little bit. So yeah, for me, it's been more of a hobby that's I've done a few pop culture things and they've caught on and I've got a few projects that way. But I think just in general, like the, the aesthetic, I guess I really enjoy. So, well, yeah, so, so which of your uh, works would you say have caught on the most or gotten the most positive attention? Right. So I did, um, I just kind of took some, uh, modern uh game characters uh like master chief from halo and um, big daddy from bioshock and um kind of recreated those in more of a minimal pixel style and those kind of got made the rounds with you know how how quickly things can kind of kind of go viral so so that kind of got me into oh this is cool people are reacting to this and liking it so i, I kind of started doing um some more stuff so i i did like a steve jobs when he passed away kind of a tribute um to him and so yeah more more, more of the pop culture stuff really tends to be fuel for for doing more of it so Right. And and one of the things that interested me, Michael, and, and one reason I want to have you on the show is that you don't actually do this for video games at all, right? This is you do this for books and just as sort of art prints and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess um for me, um the technical aspect of it, I don't I, I'm not quite as familiar with. Um I did work have worked in video games a little bit, um, but with the technology now, there's not a lot you can't do. So for me, it's more just kind of a, a stylistic approach. So, um, yeah, I mean, I like uh, a lot of the stuff I do, it ends up being for print. So it's a matter of, you know, scaling and things like that, which can be a trick when you're you're designing for a certain print size. But, yeah, it's it's kind of a different beast, I think, than than what Mark and, and Blake are used to. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, Blake, uh, let's get you in here now. Uh, talk about your history with uh, pixel art. Well, uh, I don't know how, I don't know how old um, Michael is, but I'm definitely a good deal younger than Mark, uh, and uh, I, I, I grew up on this uh, pixel art or just game art, like the the stuff that he produced. I loved Monkey Island as a kid. I was crazy about it. Played through it, you know, dozens of times. Um, I would say, I guess, the earliest 
the earliest incarnations of pixel art for me was when I was like maybe eight or nine years old and I was using a uh, paintbrush on Windows 3.1. And then after that, of course, paint, MS Paint, which is still around. And uh, I didn't think of it like pixel art at the time. I just was like, I wanted to look like the video games that I play. So I would actually... I had this weird, like, autistic preoccupation with, like, pausing a game screen on a TV, a cathode ray TV. In fact, I even burned one by, uh, burned into the TV, this image. I would take my favorite Super Nintendo games and pause them and just look at them and try to copy the entire screen onto MS Paint. And like a weirdo. Uh, anyway, flash forward, um, flash forward through college. Um, I actually went to college for music composition. That's what I have training in. Um, but, uh, in college, I kept up with visual art all along and I met the, um, my company, Dino Farm Games co-founder, Keith Bergun. And we met in college and, uh, he was like, he knew that I was a visual artist and he was like, uh, I, I need, I'm trying to make a indie game. Would you like to make the art for it? And, the rest is history. I just, our, that was a hundred rogues, by the way, our first, uh, title in 2010. And I just, you know, at the time, again, I wasn't really in the pixel art community. I didn't really know much about the modern techniques or whatever. I just knew that I love the art to metal slug and I love the art to symphony of the night. And I love the art to Disgaea and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, I just wanted to like make this sort of love letter to my favorite stuff. And so that's how I got started. Right. So, so Blake, so you're talking about sort of the role of nostalgia in the appeal of pixel art. And Michael talked about that a little bit, too. How big of a role do you think nostalgia plays in pixel art? Does it have a, a life to it beyond people who grew up with it and became attached to it that way? Well, uh, for those of you who read my article, A Pixel Artist Renounces Pixel Art, I believe that um, nostalgia is one of one of maybe two reasons for pixel art to survive, to actually be viable. The other of which I believe to be just simply on screens that are still really small, but those are a very, very declining number. Now I think the only place that you could probably make a pixel art game where pixel art is actually appropriate would be like the, the Apple Watch or something, because <laughs> I can't think of any other screens that are small enough to justify pixel art. Before that, though, in the mid-2000s, you know, Nintendo DS was still a great place. Like Order of Ecclesia, Castlevania, that was not a retro game. Yet it used pixel art because of the resolution of the screen. That was just the best option for a screen that small. I could add, I could add one more reason. I actually uh, got to do some promo art for a guy, an individual that was making his own game using pixel art. And a lot of his was, you know, the retro aesthetic, but also uh, man hours. Like to, there was something about being able to animate pixel art that was a lot quicker than if he had hand-drawn, you know, 2D sprites or whatever. So. You know, I think that's another thing I've heard is that uh, the time invested can be a lot less. Yeah, I can see that. But I actually, in my experience, having done both types of animation, um, I think um, personally, there is no shortcuts to making it good. I mean, making it, I, people say that the work flows faster and it takes quicker. In my experience, to make animation good, it just takes the same amount of time no matter what you do because what what the time it takes to make it good is just the attention to detail and the precision and and stuff so and i think that making pixel art animation look good has its own pitfalls sure you don't have to like articulate a hand the way you would with an hd um asset but you do have to make sure that all of the there are no like floating pixels and the dither lines all work frame to frame and it takes a lot of trial and error so i guess what i'm saying is there's no cheap way to make it good i i think personally 
I would agree that there's no cheap way to make it good. I, I think there's a trade-off in terms of the how much time and effort it takes. Uh, pixel art may be faster in that the process is simpler and the size is, you know, the, the size of, of canvas that you have to deal with is smaller. But when just the shift of a single pixel can completely change the shape of something, you spend an awful lot of time. I mean, if I'm drawing an egg, you know, in 32-bit high-res art, I can just sketch an egg in a big hurry. If I'm drawing an egg in, you know, 8-bit uh, pixel art, uh, where the pixels are all visible, I need to sort of move those pixels back and forth and back and forth until I get the best approximation of an egg shape that I can get. Uh, I spend an awful lot of time moving pixels around in 8-bit art that I would not be spending in 32-bit art. Um, and that actually makes dithered 8-bit art a lot slower for me to do than the high-res stuff today. So I think it's a yeah. double-edged sword. Yeah, something's got to give. And I, that's like, for example, um, H, another way people cut costs in HD animation, which I personally, being an animator myself, I personally hate, is paper doll animation, where, you know, you make, we all know about this, you know, you take HD assets, like a body and an arm and an elbow and a neck and a head, and then you just make them like paper dolls and hinge them together and just rotate them and animate them like a marionette or a paper doll. And it like looks dreadful, but it's like way, way, way cheaper. So like, the the way to cut costs is always, I think, necessarily to just make the art worse. However, I will say this: in there are now, I think that the real way to cut costs and still make something pleasing is to work smart. In that you choose a style that can be sustainable. Like for example, like a lot of some pixel art I see has just a lot of solid color, like just solid rough forms. Like a human head is like literally a blob of, of, of flesh tone. And in the context of the greater picture, when the composition's good and the colors are good and the style is charming and stuff, you can actually produce tons of assets in that style very quickly because you don't have to worry about, you know, aliasing lines and all that kind of stuff. Well, Blake, you, you mentioned your, your blog post about renouncing pixel art. Why don't you say, for people who haven't read that, say a bit more about why are you renouncing pixel art? Well, to be perfectly honest, that title is a bit clickbaity, but not entirely, because when I say renounce, what I mean is our company is moving away from it. Our company won't be doing it anymore. I love pixel art, and I'm crazy about it, and now I am part of the pixel joint community and other pixel art communities, and I, and I'm really, I consume a lot of it, and I really love it. Um, but in terms of our company, we're, we are renouncing it, quote unquote, as in we are not going to, our future games won't have it. And in the PC launch of Oro, our game, we're going to, we're starting to integrate more HD art into it um, moving forward. And the reason for that is simply because uh, it's becoming less and less of a common language. There's the retro gamer crowd who understands, who gets, who's in on it. They, they're in on what pixel art is. So when they see it, the, min the minute they see it, they'll just be like, oh, that's like my old games from my childhood. I get it. But that's actually a relatively small number. There are so, so, so many people who are young and they're, you know, they're teenagers. And the, the earliest game they can remember is from like PlayStation 2 or something. And so when they see pixel art and they're not plugged into the retro gaming movement, they are confused because they don't speak the language. And I guess the, the long short of it is, my, my thesis was, um, I think that it's um, the responsibility of the artist not to require their audience to acquire special knowledge to understand their work. So a good uh, um, analogy I, I could make is that I'm not saying to pander or do something you don't take pride in, 
but I but like write a really challenging next great American novel that like confronts the zeitgeist and all this stuff. Just don't write it in ancient Greek. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, Mark, you read uh, Blake's piece, right? Do you want to just talk about what your re response to it was? Well, I agreed with a lot of what he was saying. I, I think that, you know, I'm looking at the whole issue through a different frame. I think that uh, Blake's frame is a commercial one. And what I really saw him saying in the article and hear him reiterating now is that commercially, we have reached the point where it's making less and less sense to create a product for a mass market audience that's all written in a language for a small niche market that most of them don't belong to. So commercially, I don't see any reason to be doing pixel art anymore. However, all the pixel art that is being done these days is being done by and for people who do remember when games looked like this. And it's being done because for whatever reasons, and I, I have some opinions about what those reasons might be, they really want pixel art. So from a commercial standpoint, I think everything Blake is saying makes sense. From an artistic standpoint, I think that pixel art is a period in art history. It is a style associated with the technology of a particular age. Um, if I am famous for, I mean, to the extent that I am famous at all, which is not very much, but to the extent that I am famous for anything, I am probably most famous for a series of color cycling landscapes uh, that I did for a product that hardly saw the light of day before the company went bankrupt and the product more or less disappeared. Um, these were landscapes that changed time of day and weather and all the environments, the water and the, and the snow and uh, heat shimmer and all these things were all animated purely with color cycling. Uh, those things went viral, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. I get fan mail from people who have seen those somewhere in the world pretty much on a daily basis. Um, all of which I appreciate very much and which I ceased to be able to keep up with responding to some time ago. Um, and uh, when I, uh, I, I worked briefly at ILM working on a Union Bank commercial there and somebody knew about, even then, this was many, many years ago, knew about this collection and the, the uh, art director at ILM sort of invited some other department heads over because she wanted me to show them uh, this collection of color cycling landscapes. And when it was all done, uh, one of the other department heads who'd come over to look shook his head and said, that is the most remarkable collection of digital scrimshaw I have ever seen. And he meant it as a compliment, and I took it as a compliment. <laughs> um, yeah. But he was dead on the money. Uh, scrimshaw, for anybody who doesn't know, was the art of carving pictures into whalebone uh, and rubbing a dark dye into them, and you'd have something that looked like an engraving made in whalebone. It was very popular during the height of the whaling industry. Um, everybody had bits of scrimshaw in their homes as decoration, and it will never, it, well, it won't be dying anytime soon because it has actually become a unique artistic representation of a particular period in history, in art history and other kinds of history, and so it has a niche. As, a, as an art form, as a unique art form. I think that pixel art will end up as another kind of unique art form and examples will be kept around by art historians. But the popular market for pixel art will last as long as the generation who played those games is still running the world. That is probably passing now. Uh, it's, it's probably good for another five or 10 years. Yeah, it's, you know, 
I actually wanted to to jump in though and and make one quick uh sort of semi correction to my uh what I'm talking about in the article about commercial versus whatever. To me, it's not really I mean, we are a business and we do want to sell products and we do want to be successful, but you know, if you do stuff that's that's part of your vision and part of what you think is beautiful yet it alienates consumers, that's fine. I'm just saying simply put not to let special knowledge come between you and your audience so that they can actually consume your art and appreciate it for what it is. I agree with everything you just said when it comes to um, pixel art having its place and being part of art history. And again, I'm a huge, enormous fan of it. And, uh, you know, I produce it and consume it all the time. Um, but I'm also a huge fan of, you know, traditional 2D hand-drawn Disney animation, which is dying and will probably not survive the next 50 years because unless except in these very very small niches because of i guess how expensive it is and how and how most people don't understand like it's kind of a similar thing like it's i think that it's so much better than 3d animation but the people don't see you need to be discerning to see how that's the case you need to like kind of be an animator to understand that you know so like you know when you're, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but when, when okay. you are done, I, I really want to respond to this. Um, so keep going. Well, I'm, you yeah, know, I, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm almost through with my thought. I just wanted to say that what you were saying, um, uh, yes, I agree, but that's what I'm, it's kind of the same as poetry's function in our society today or jazz music's function in our society or opera. It's like museum art. There's still a place for opera. It's, there's still going to be people who love it and consume it and even produce it, but it's a kind of iron lung. You need like basically eccentric billionaires, benefactors to like pump money into it to keep it alive. And so pixel art as we know it is at a crossroads now where, where when the generation who, you know, is in the power structure who understands what it is dies off, it will die off too. Other than inside of these small circles that are actually more thankful because your thing got viral and got all this appreciation, it's more thankful in the small amounts of people who consume it than uh, doing something with wider appeal, you know? Yeah, well, yeah, I, yeah. I am. Um, I will say that virtually two thirds of the of the maybe three quarters of the fan mail I get about those color cycling landscapes uh, starts with the phrase, or, or or somewhere in the first sentence or two, the phrase. This took me right back to my gaming experience when I was a child. So certainly the visceral connection of that visual stimulation with a memory of what it was like to play games back in the late 80s and early 90s is part of what's pushing this. Um, I think, though, if I can respond to some of what you've just said, I think, though, that the idea that it's somehow a mistake to produce even art in a secret language is pretty limiting. Um, Picasso and Van Gogh and even Caravaggio, who would be considered the height of classical now, they all uh, mystified and offended most of their audience when they actually painted those things. They were not figuring out what artistic language their audience spoke and then speaking in that, communicating in that language, they had some inner vision that was entirely private and they expressed that. And eventually, uh, along with a lot of other people who we don't remember today, whose art has vanished, but eventually people came to find value in their work that, that people in general did not recognize at the time. 
which is why their works are remembered. Uh, your comment about opera being kind of a, a dying or an outmoded art form uh, is true for bad opera, um, but <laughs> uh, every time the ring cycle comes to any city I know, it is sold out two years in advance. You, you can't get tickets, and that's opera too. Um, the quality things, I think, will actually become more appreciated over time because as the public context that defines these things at the moment of their creation dies away, the inherent value of those things becomes clearer and easier to see. Having said all of that, it'll be interesting to see what, if any, inherent value pixel art has, because like a number of us have acknowledged already here, pixel art was not actually an expression of anybody's inner vision until now. Pixel right. art in the beginning was just a technological inevitability. Uh, we, we simply, you know, we needed pictures for these games and this was the only way they could be done, so we did pixel art. So the fact that pixel art was not, in fact, the invention of somebody's private secret language may or may not end up deciding whether there's any inherent value artistically in pixel art down the line. If there is valuable pixel art, it'll be interesting to see how much of it was created back in the 80s when it was uh, a necessary evil uh, and how much of the pixel art that that becomes valuable enough to keep and remember later is actually being produced now by people who love pixel art because they really love pixel art. Yeah, I, I think in general, like as an art form, um, I can see it kind of living on. I, there's a, an artist that I follow, um, Pixels Huh, P-I-X-E-L-S-H-U-H, if you look him up, um, does some really beautiful illustrations um, in kind of a, a pixel style. And I was just looking through his stuff now, very atmospheric, and I'm just thinking, um, you know, I think it's a lot of, it, it's a medium, right? It's, it's not necessarily, you know, the technology, but it's, it's a way people work to express something. And I think, you know, you can look at stippling and things like that um, that are more tedious or, or whatever. But to me, I, I can see it living on as kind of a, just something that people like to work in. Well, well, one thing I thought was interesting, Blake, is that your article is sort of about pixel art dying, but then this post goes viral and everyone seems to have really strong opinions about it. I mean, do you, what do you think about that? I mean, the fact that there's so much passion about this dying art form. Yeah, and actually that actually it's it's a good that's good that you asked me that now because it sort of ties into what I had to say to Mark, which is um that in the grand scheme of things that I don't think that's the case. It got it 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 ha I had my little moment in the spotlight but we got all of maybe it got posted on polygon game of sutra and our website and we got maybe half a million hits in three days or four days which is great i mean but by you know youtube standards that's nothing um and so for me yes half a million is an immense number and half a million people who feel this strongly about pixel art you know or it let's even say a fraction like you know uh, even let's say there's more who didn't see the article let's say there's a million let's even double that be very generous um you know that's a tiny drop in the bucket in terms of our pop culture and our mass media and and who's out there and stuff and again yes maybe people go see the ring cycle book two years in advance but that number compared to the amount of people who go to say your average hollywood movie is nothing okay well, wait, i, I want to ask mark i mean mark you mentioned a little bit earlier that you think that there's some deeper reason why uh we're seeing a resurgence of pixel art games could you go into uh, go more into that 
Yeah, I, actually, I, I would love to just say one more thing about the conversation we've been having before I start. Sure. Can I do that? Sure. Um, I actually want to reiterate more strongly something I said a minute ago. Um, the Impressionist movement was reviled by the majority of fans when it first emerged, and the majority of art fans, the majority of the art community and art buyers, and went on to become pretty much the ruling dynasty of art for the world for about a century. Um, I think it is possible. Uh, there's one way that pixel art could survive this nostalgia movement in some important way, and that is that it could actually breed pixel artists who do things with pixels that nobody during the day of real pixel art ever had a reason to do. In, in the late 80s, we did, like any gaming company does, really, we did as much as we had to do to get the game out on time. So the idea of building a giant palace of pixels, a massive skyscraper-sized mural in pixels, well, it never occurred to anybody. It would be the stupidest thing you could possibly do, not to mention bankrupting anybody who did it. You know, why, why would you? Now that there is not a commercial motive, really, for pixel art, if great pixel artists are going to emerge and do something with pixels that matters permanently for artistic reasons, now will be the time it's likely to happen, not back in the 80s when we were seriously doing pixel art, because we had to. I also think, by the way, that that's already kind of happening in that modern pixel art is is using techniques that other people that people in the past didn't use. But now you have people who do these like insane textures and palettes and 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 textures that I just blow my mind. Like and I think that, like you said, having that time to like reflect and think deeper about pixel art is already producing stuff that we didn't see even even in the golden days even in the the metal slug days and stuff nothing there's stuff happening now on pixel joint that's like i can't even believe it so dave back to your uh, your question about my suspicions about the current pixel movement um as i said earlier so much of the email i get from people who want to write and tell me how much they have enjoyed my pixel art um involves a direct reference how it transports them back to their gaming experience. And I suspect that part of the resurgence of 8-bit game art in particular has to do with the fact that the experience of playing a game and the form of computer games themselves has changed radically from the games they played as kids. And that part of this fascination with pixels is not in fact a fascination with pixels or with the art itself at all, as much as it is an unconscious um, recapture of playing a different kind of game. Um, when I found out about Thimbleweed Park, the, the project I'm working on right now with Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick, um, I was immediately interested in being involved, but not because it involved pixel art. I really, to be honest, stopped doing pixel art years ago when better options arrived for creating art. Like I said, it's always been about the art for me, not the gaming, really. So. I stopped doing pixel art, and I have no giant urge to be doing it again. Sometimes it's kind of a pain in the butt to have to move <laughs> one pixel back and forth and back and forth until you find the right place for it. Um, but what really made me want to be involved in the Thimbleweed Park project was the fact that they were going to make a Lucasfilm-style adventure game. 
The games that we made at Lucasfilm back in the late 80s were about storytelling, and they were about character arc. They were about interesting interactions between quirky characters. They were about puzzle solving and humor and exploration and sometimes even a sense of wonder. Those games, that kind of game, what the game was about, what parts of your brain were involved in playing it, all of that changed as, as that era's adventure games were replaced by first-person shooters. Um, and I want to say I, I have gotten the, the chance to meet some of the, the fundamental um, first causes of the first-person shooter game genre and, uh, and find them to be remarkably wonderful people. So I do not mean to cast aspersions on anybody here, but <laughs> when, when games went from being about storytelling and character and humor and puzzle solving and exploration to being about running down a long hallway, kicking, punching, shooting, and blowing up anything you encounter... I think that the way that games engaged people back in the late 80s changed into a dopamine loop with people who, who got into kind of a motor reflex thing, uh, and it, they became an addictive twitch. And it has always astonished me how long that addictive twitch engaged a giant audience of people. Um, I think we're finally reaching the point where people who see pixel art remember that games were a completely different experience when they were children and find themselves actually missing that form and content of game. Well, well Mark, do you just want to say for people who haven't been following Thimbleweed Park, do you just want to say a bit more about what it is and what people should look forward to in it? Sure. Um, as I may or may not have mentioned by now already, Gary Winnick was the art director at Lucasfilm Games when I was hired in 1987. Ron Gilbert was the head of uh, programming there, I believe, at that time. He went on to found uh, Humongous Software and a whole string of notable software projects um, that I there isn't time to go into here. And uh, for whatever reasons, last year, uh, they looked around, I think, and realized that there might be a market for old-style Lucasfilm adventure games again. And so they did a Kickstarter project um, where they offered to make uh, a old-style Lucasfilm adventure game as if you bought a game in 1987 and put it in a drawer and forgot it was there and just found it now unopened. And they got... By the third day of their campaign, they had raised $350,000. Uh, by the end of their campaign, I believe they had more than doubled that. Uh, so there definitely is a market for, for retro gaming. Now, again, to what extent pixel art is driving that and to what extent pixel art is writing that, I couldn't say. But uh, like I've said, when I found out that they were doing a game that was about the things our adventure games, and, and particularly with Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick's sense of humor. Ron Gilbert, Steve Purcell, and Gary Winnick, it was their sense of humor that really formed the mindset of all those games. We used to sit around in the office just laughing our heads off for hours a day. So if you found them entertaining, you found them entertaining because these people and their specific sense of humor. So uh, this is a story basically about a dying little town called Thimbleweed Park that used to be uh, a boom town, and now it is completely bust. And there has been a murder there, and two detectives are called in from out of town to investigate this murder and discover that there is the murder is just the tiny tip of a of a much larger and inexpressibly absurd iceberg 
uh, in Thimbleweed Park. So, uh, and it is, we are not, in fact, sticking rigidly to a 256 color palette. Uh, we are certainly adding tweaks and features to the game which were not in existence in 1987. But we are working very hard to make sure that the game feels and plays and looks just. You should definitely think Secret of Monkey Island, Maniac Mansion, Loom. When you play this game, it should do just what so many of my uh, my email friends tell me it does. It should bring them right back to the games they played as a kid. No, that, I mean, that sounds fantastic. Uh, I don't know, Mark, have you followed there's a fan remake, a, a sequel to Loom going on? I don't know if you followed that at all. No, no. In fact, I I wasn't aware that it was happening until just now. Thanks for informing me. Yeah, it's called Forge. Uh, it looks in its... <laughs> so I can sue their ass. <laughs> <laughs> no. So how's that going? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Do they, do they need art? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I bet they'd be happy to have you. Yeah. Uh, if you're list, if the Forge people are listening to this, you know, uh, shoot Mark an email. You should uh, look them up. I am available in 2017. I think. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're running a little short on time, and I did want to ask Michael about this Puff and Pixels books uh, I mentioned in the intro. Um, do you just want to say, like, what was the thought process behind releasing these classic stories like Robin Hood and King Arthur with this 8-bit pixel art? Right. So um, I think the so Puffin does um, kind of artist series where they'll you know get an illustrator to do whether it's some font treatment or some illustration. Um, so they had seen some of my work and and wanted to do a series of pixel art covers. I mean, I think their intention was like we've been talking about was to kind of reach, you know, reach out to that nostalgic feeling and, and get um, some people interested in, in reading these classics that might not have. Um, so, and I think they just wanted to try something new. So yeah, so uh, there'll be eight books in total, I think by the end of it um, coming out fall and then early next year. But I mean, it's, it's exciting for me just in terms of exposure, but um, I, I think it'll be a neat collection of, of collectibles. So, Mike, I've got something ironic I need to share with you here. I, I, I was astonished when I saw your book covers uh, by the very concept, actually. But the really funny thing is, after Lucasfilm hired me, I, I actually started out my career as a, as a book cover artist for a number of the mass market genre publishers in New York. And after I, I learned to do what I did really well with Lucasfilm, um, I actually tried to get somebody in New York to think about doing book wow. covers this way, and they absolutely refused because you could see <laughs> the pixels. Uh, they weren't about to allow pixel art onto the book covers. So now that they're seeking somebody out because there are pixels there, that's, that's that just shows nuts. you how the world turns. Right. Yeah, that's pretty wild. <laughs> uh, and then, Blake, I definitely wanted to give you a chance to talk about Oro. Uh, it's been in development for four years. You want to just t say a bit about Oro and uh, the role of pixel art in that? Uh, well, um, Oro is... Uh, I'm the lead artist for Dino Farm Games. We're a small startup. We released in February after four years of development. And it's uh, it's for iOS and Android at the moment, but we got greenlit and it's coming to Steam in uh, just a few months, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Oro is a turn-based tactics game. You play a little spoiled brat prince who stole the court wizard's magic staff and it goes down into these dungeons and you uh, the hook of the game is you can't damage monsters you can bump them 
And the object of the game is to beat a score goal for a match and uh, bump the monsters into the water. And the devil's in the details because there's all these insane chain reactions and emergent depth from mixing and matching all the tactical spells together. Um, it's randomly generated and it's just like a game you could play. Our biggest fans have played upwards of 2,000 matches since its release. It's one of those, it's like having, you know, chess or solitaire in your pocket or Tetris in your pocket. It just lasts forever and ever and ever. Um, uh, oh, and Mark, you'd like it, I think, because A, it's turn-based, and B, uh, it's very uh, funny. The game has a very, like, kind of Paper Mario-ish light tone to it. It's, uh, it's, I think that you'd, I think you'd find it very funny if you like the Monkey Island humor, so, you know. <laughs> anyway. Right. Um, uh, did you, uh, that, uh, was that, was that your splash screen that was the first image on, at the top of your article? That well, that's actually was gonna be the PC title screen, and uh, I have a, <laughs> I have major problems with that picture now. But yes, that is some art that will be in the landscape version of. I thought that art was spectacular. I mean, really, I just I I was rather in awe of your ability with pixels when I saw that piece. So I don't know oh, what well. you think of it or what your problems are, but I thought it was amazing. Well, we're our, all our own worst enemy, but I've just been complimented by the Monkey Island guy, so I can die yeah, happy. No. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid your criticisms have been overruled. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, the uh, pixel art's role in Oro was my own... I like Basically, it's a serious strategy game that's good for years and years of play, and it's, it's really incredible. And I say that without conceit, because I didn't design it. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway... Um, I wanted, though, a lot of strategy games, though, they have very dry theming, and a lot of the times the art is, you know, um, to be frank, kind of ugly. Uh, a lot of those military war games and strategy games, there's so many sub-menus and damage types and armor types, and the, it's dr all very green and brown and dry, and the units are tiny, they look like ants and stuff, and it's just not, you know, strategy games are not known for being very attractive. And so I, what I wanted to do is bridge the gap. I wanted to get that, like, sort of Japanese, like, really polished look and combine it with really solid core gameplay, um, one of the stumbling blocks of our development is it kind of backfired because on uh, strategy gamers see it and they think it's like a like a kitty game or something because it it doesn't it looks you know like a Japanese like Zelda or something and then console gamers and action RPG gamers and stuff who play it are like wait a minute where's the XP where's the items where's the leveling up where's the the stuff that I'm used to you know so. In a way, I kind of it kind of backfired, but that was my goal. Well, someday when your genre of game is the leading genre, Vincent Van Gogh, nobody will be laughing. <laughs> uh, well, hey, bless your heart. <laughs> All right, great. So I think that's a good note to end on. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Mark Ferrari and Michael B. Myers Jr. and Blake Reynolds. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Our pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, yeah. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Mark Ferrari, Michael B. Myers Jr., and Blake Reynolds for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Mimi267 in Ireland, who writes, This podcast has given me a newfound respect for this genre and has truly captivated me. A fantastic show, I'm hooked. Some brilliant book and film recommendations, and interviews which ask the right questions. Definitely my favorite podcast ever. Keep up the great work, and thanks for making such a great show. So a huge thanks again to Mimi267 for that great review. And of course, a special thank you to Atriel Hudson, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. 
And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.